Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Excited to be here. I'm excited to get to talk about what we're talking about this morning. So for those of you that um, maybe are are getting caught up, we are continuing in our study on the the road less traveled. and more specifically on the, the study on the book of Revelation this, this morning. And, <laughs> you know, I mentioned when we first started this portion of the study that, um, you know, the book of Revelation isn't typically a spot where, where most pastors find themselves on Sunday morning. Um, it's, it's not really very a common uh, section to preach out of. And I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. But what I will say, just from a, a purely uh, human standpoint, <laughs> is it's nice just having some fresh material. <laughs> it, it's nice getting to, to start with something that, you know, sure, I, I haven't maybe preached out of this book as much as I have. And so because of that, I get the opportunity to start clean. <laughs> and so that's a, a blessing and something to look forward to. But just to, to get us caught up in, in what we're talking about, that the Apostle John has received this revelation from God to the people in the seven churches in Asia, but it was for us also. And In this revelation, we see this picture of the ultimate reality. We we talked about this this ultimate reality last week where the ultimate reality is not my experience that's happening right in front of me today. The ultimate reality is that God is on his throne and all affection in the universe is going towards that throne. And as we lift up our hands and we lift up our voices in worship to God, it joins with the worship that is ultimately happening in front of the throne room of God and we become part of that. That's the, the ultimate reality. Again, not the, the physical realities that I see, but the, the real thing. And last week we talked about that, that John was brought up into that throne room. And there was a scroll. There was a scroll that no one could open. It couldn't, couldn't be unlocked. It, it couldn't be unrolled. And in that scroll was the, the, the meaning of life. We, we couldn't figure out how do we flourish? How do we succeed? What are the, the secret ingredients? It was all in that scroll and no one could open it. John wept because there was no one on heaven, there, in heaven, there was no one on earth or under the earth that could open the scroll. But there was one. If we look at this scroll, the scroll contains the the meaning of history. It it has world history. It has my history. It has your history, your children's history, your children's children's history. The, The consummation of creation's intended purposes are shown in this scroll. What everything's about how the, the heavens will come down to earth, how, how all things will be made new. There won't be any more tears. Everything will be reset to the way that God intends them to be before the sin, sin comes into the world and fractures the cosmos. That's what is shown in the scroll, and yet there's no one who can open it. And, and it makes sense why John would weep. 
Don't you, wouldn't you want to know those things? Wouldn't you want to see that there is hope beyond what I'm looking at today? Goodness, there has to be hope beyond what I see today. And the, the elder comes to John, just like we talked about last week, he says, don't weep. Because the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, can open the scroll. He is worthy to open the scroll. And as these seals begin to open, as this scroll begins to open, we get these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I'm, I'm not talking about the, the backfield of the, the Notre Dame football team. I'm not talking about the, the pale rider from the, the old Western movie. We're talking about something more than that. <laughs> As we look around at these figures that show up in the book of Revelation, we, we see that they pop up in these different areas of culture. When we first started talking about the, the book of Revelation, we first started talking about the important points of, of understanding it and reading this type of literature, this type of letter, this type of prophecy that is in the Bible, there's some specific points that we have to make sure that we hold on to, right? This passage can't mean for us what it didn't mean for the people it was written to. I don't get to take this passage and make it mean something completely different from what the men and the women in the church of Asia would have read in the first century. Now, to be clear, is it possible that there are multiple interpretations, multiple fulfillments of prophecy that go beyond the wildest expectations of that first century church? You bet. And, and we're going to see that over and over and over again. And so the next question is, what are these four horsemen? They are the, the major players in suffering and pain and death among all of humankind not good. These horsemen are not good. They are not the kinds of horses you want to own. This is not good at all. And so what we start with is we have this first of four horses. We have the white horse. The white horse represents the Antichrist. And, and when we say Antichrist, sometimes if you've, you've read the book of Revelation, you think of like the one Antichrist, that, right? There's this, this one guy, but the, the spirit of Antichrist is anything that is anti-Jesus, an imitation Jesus. And as we start looking at this section out of Revelation, we're looking at Revelation 6 and 7, you're going to see that none of this is new information. As we read Matthew 24, Jesus tells about all of the things that are, that are going to come. Matthew 24, 4 through 5, Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. This white rider that, that is coming as this first seal is wearing a white robe. It's riding a white horse. It's, it's wearing a crown. It, it has a bow almost identical to the Jesus that we see portrayed in Revelation 19, except in that chapter, Jesus is carrying a sword. And so we have the, this example of, of two different illustrations. One is an imitation Jesus. And then we have the real thing in Revelation 19. So 
there, this has to be something that, that meant something to this first century church, right? This, this isn't just talking about an event that's going to come in the future. This is something that, that is existing today and in their time as well. If we look outside the church, the, the white horse works like this. You don't need Jesus for salvation. There are many ways to receive salvation. There are many ways to open the scroll. We don't need Jesus to open the scroll. There are many ways to determine the purposes for your life. You don't need the church. You don't need Jesus to determine the purposes for your life. That's the white horse working outside the church. Inside the church, it's just bad teaching about who Jesus is. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. 2 John 1 Uh, chapter 1 verse 7 I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world as such any or any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist the rider on the white horse is an imitation savior that has no power to save this is a a scary thing. There is a way to believe in Jesus that has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. Anytime you try to shrink Jesus to be less than he is, anytime you try to add to or take away from the cross that Jesus died in, anytime you disregard scripture, you are moving away from the Jesus that has come to reconcile you to God, and you are instead inching towards that little chair that I set down in front of us yesterday, last week and saying that, that my throne, my reality, my perception of how everything is matters more than this eternal perspective that I'm being given, shown through Jesus Christ. Then we come to the red horse. The red horse is is war, is bloody and violent. Matthew 24, verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Again, Jesus is is sharing this information well before the, the revelation that's shown to John. Human nature is bent towards war. If any of you have ever dealt with a toddler, you know. (laughs) When rage and anger bubbles up inside us and and it, it gets consensus, that is when nations go to war against other nations. This terrible, awful scourge that takes place throughout history, throughout all of humankind. And so, but the question may be tempting to ask, well, does it mean that the red horse is no longer riding if there, there isn't a nation fighting against another nation? Absolutely not. The, the red horse is constantly active in the background. Taunts, 
aggravation, promoting rage and anger, all of these things that, that build up time after time after time. If you look at our culture, if you look at, at the headlines, if you look at social media, we see that, that rage and anger are, are normative. Like, that, this is just something that is expected in, in our life and in society. There, there's this new thing that, that's out that, that are called rage rooms. And so you can go into this room and there's all of these things that are, are breakable and they give you a bat and then you just say, just go in there and just destroy everything. And, you know, some of you, it's okay to be honest. It's like, you know, that kind of feels nice. Like, like that might be kind of nice just going in there and smashing a bunch of things. And, and, and okay, maybe it would be nice for a moment, but how long would it take for that rage to come back? How long would it take for, for whatever is driving that anger inside you to come back? Is it really getting rid of, rid of anything when we come to, to express that? When I snap at someone else out of anger or out of frustration, does that solve anything? Does it actually reduce or, or resolve the issue that is going on in my heart? Or is that a temporary Fix a temporary retrieve from a reprieve from something that's deeper. It's temporary, right? If I am am rude, if I am short, if I am harsh with my wife in the moment, sure, okay, I I gave voice, I vented out my anger, my frustration. Does that mean that the problem solved, or does that mean that I need to come back and and I need to now come and repair the relationship? that I have damaged through that, but then I also have to figure out what is it that's driving that in me? Because anger is not typically just magically showing up. There's something else that is manifesting anger in my life. The, the words that, that come out of anger are often words that lead to regret, that lead to pain, that lead to sorrow, lead to shame. These feelings of anger, these feelings of rage that exist in individual lives that then, again, when given consensus, lead to nation fighting against nation. That's not normal. That's not, that's not of God. That's not God's intention for my life. That is the red horse that, that is on the move in the world today, just as it was on the move, on the move in the church of the first century. Now we have the black horse. The black horse represents famine. Matthew 24, 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Okay, we've been having a bunch of earthquakes. Nobody start freaking out, okay? <laughs> Revelation 6, 6. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil or the wine. That seems a little specific. <laughs> but but it, it's interesting to look at because what, what does that tell us? That the, the wheat and the barley, those, those things matter. We, they, those things are necessary to be able to live. You have to have that. And what they're saying is, is you have to have 
an entire day's wages to be able to buy one serving, two pounds of wheat, a, a day's wages. These are poverty rations. And yet, at the same time, don't damage the oil and the wine. Don't damage the things that are the luxury goods that, that people just, you know, don't necessarily need, but the things that people want. This writer is meant to take from the world what people actually need and leave for them the luxury that they don't. It's setting up this reality where we don't have what we need to have fullness in life and instead we have junk that can bring no life at all. Now, could this writer represent actual famine where there's no food and there's no drink? Absolutely. And, and I think that that's very likely. We've probably seen multiple fulfillments of that through history already. But it seems like that this is also calling out a famine of the soul. Where you have everything that you don't need and none of what you actually need so desperately. If you look out at the world, there is a, a host of substitutions that, that are, are being presented as, well, maybe this will fit that need. Maybe if you just look at, at this woman with her clothes off, maybe if you just inject this particular chemical formula into your arm, maybe if you just smoke this, maybe if you just eat this, it, it'll be okay. None of that is what we need, and we're missing what we actually do need. One author says this, the brutal fact is this, the average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He or she has little family, few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and certainly no Christ. He or she exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. That is the writer of the black, of the black horse. And it's no wonder if that is the reality. It is no wonder that we are despairing. It is no wonder that we are marked with anxiety. We have the famine of the black rider and then we have the white rider pointing out everything else that we should be looking at except Jesus. And none of us can open the scroll. And then we have the, the pale horse in the, the Greek, the word pale means yellowish green, i.e. The, the color of puke, I think is what we're going <laughs> to go with here. <laughs> the color of sickness, the color of death, pestilence and disease unto death. If we look at death in the first century, Death mocked medical science. Death, death mocked the, the technology that they had at the time. If we look at, at today... Death still mocks medical science. Death still mocks the technology that we have. Yeah, we, we've maybe found ways to, to address certain sicknesses. We've found ways to address certain illnesses. But in the end, death comes. The pale rider comes with Hades following behind is, is what we see in Revelation. 
And then in ch- uh, chapter 6, verses 9, uh, all the way up to 17, we see that there's some extra fun that's waiting where we get some religious persecution that gets sprinkled in. We, we see some natural calamity that comes. So all of these extra things get to, to be piled upon these, these four horsemen that are coming. And, and we say, well, why are those extra? The, the writers are present in human experience all across history. The, the events that we talked about are, are present all throughout history. They're always writing. They are always bringing to bear what God has called them to bring to bear on God's creation. But the religious persecution that's talked about, the, the calamities, excuse me, the natural calamities that are coming about, those things, those things happen in specific points in time. They happen to specific people in specific places. So do we understand what it means when we say that this passage can't mean for us what it doesn't mean to the original recipients of this letter? These writers were on the move back then just as they are on the move today. Revelation 6, 15 uh, through 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, and they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Where are we going to look for hope? Probably not to the kings of the earth. If they're hiding in the caves, begging for the mountains to fall on them. Maybe Hollywood is where we should turn. I don't think that's a good idea. We probably can't turn to our own military. Our own military is probably represented in one of these writers. Who can stand? That's the question that's being asked. When we see in chapter 7 where the four writers are told to wait to wait until the servants of God have been sealed. John hears that the number of those sealed is 144,000. Now we can't be that person that's looking around starting to count one, two, three, four. Like this is, these numbers are getting a little, that's kind of a small number, Matt. Am, am I in that number? Do I count? No, it, it's not like that. And I mentioned last week there's going to be some times where we step out of what we're, we're seeing in Scripture for just a moment, and we're going to just go into some, some theory, right, some of, of Matt's ideas. And so this is a number, if we look at 144,000, it is a number of completeness. It is a number of wholeness. If we think about math for just a minute, and a, a way to arrive at 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 is a key number, and we mentioned that last. We have 12 tribes of Israel. We have the 12 disciples. 12 shows up in the Bible. Some say that the number of 144,000 represents a remnant of Christ-following Jews who will go forth at some time during a specific time period where they will participate in a calling that God has for them. That very well could be. I don't know. 
But in the end, I think the most important point for us to focus on when we see this number is that it is a number of completeness and fullness, that the complete work of God is going to save and ransom all who are called by his name. And so we we are left with this question of who can stand? Right? The kings can't stand. The the celebrity of this earth can't stand. The, The military might of this earth is not enough to stand. Who can stand? Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Eugene Peterson says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil in Revelation 6 are set along extravagant praise in Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storms. And evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak before such worship. So when the question is asked, who can stand in light of the four riders? Who can stand in the midst of the struggles that we are facing on this earth? Who can stand in light of religious persecution? Who can stand in light of natural calamity? John and Jesus' answer to that is that my people will stand. And not only will they stand, they will stand and they will worship in the face of what is coming against them. Now, we can't soft sell the difficulties that are going to be experienced. Just like John wasn't going to sugarcoat the difficulties that that first century church was going to experience. Things are going to get worse. But we have to be rooted in hope. If we look at at Matthew 24, it's been this mirror to much of what we've just read in Revelation 6. And near the end, Jesus says in, in 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. These writers are unleashed on humankind and their attacks go on strong. Why? Why do they, are they able to continue to attack? The kingdom of God is continuing to grow. Despite the efforts that have been put out to stop it. We here in Fortuna, California are, are worshiping God. What good did the red horse of the Roman Empire do to stop that from happening? What plague knocked out the church? What scheme or or false doctrine? What terrible heresy eradicated the church so that we weren't going to be here today worshiping God? We stand here in 2023 singing our song to Christ. 
So how do we handle these four horsemen that are alive and well, that are riding across the earth today? The white horse, how do we handle this antichrist? We proclaim that there is salvation to be had in Christ alone. Matt, the, everybody else is going to be really upset when we share that with them. Yeah, we probably just need to get used to that. I would rather be hated for sharing that message than to be hated for being hypocritical and self-righteous. Christ is the one, the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. We have to, just like I shared a couple of weeks ago, we have to embody our doctrine. It's not enough just to know our doctrine. We have to embody it. We have to recognize that being and, and living the way that we say matters. When we focus so much on doctrine and, and the knowing of doctrine that we forget to live it, we find ourselves subtly stepping into the camp of the white rider. How do we face the red horse? How do we address the red horse? We receive the gospel of peace. Did you know that you don't have to prove anything to anyone? You aren't the best mom or dad that has ever lived. You aren't the, the best Christian that ever was. And even though you are neither of those things, God delights in you. Just think about that for a minute. God delights in you. God accepts you. God is, is singing a song over you. If you are constantly struggling with rage in your life, that's a, that's a check engine light for your soul. If rage and anger is something that is constantly taking place in your life, you need to not ignore it. Get someone to help you. Don't do it on your own. Get someone to help you to determine what it is that is actually causing that to happen. If we look at, at what the source of rage and anger typically is, most often it's sadness. If, if you stop for just a moment and, and really go deep into why is it that I'm so angry? I'm so angry because I'm upset and I'm sad and, and my anger is a way for me to not deal with that. My anger is a way for me to lash out at everything else and not deal with the sadness that I'm facing. But Matt, I don't want to deal with the sadness. Yeah, but do you want to deal with anger? God doesn't want you dealing with any of those things but they have to be addressed in order for you to move on. How do we deal with the black horse? Promote radical generosity. Reject the scarcity mindset. Know your neighbors, know their stories, know them in such a way that you can pray for them. And, you know, I'm not just talking about being radically generous with our money, but what it would look like if we were radically generous with our lives. I don't need to worry about scarcity in this world because my God is sufficient. 
My God is more than enough. How do I deal with the the pale horse? We pray with faith that God heals and we expect God to do it. And then we, we hold it out to God. We hold it out to God with an open hand because he is God and I am not. You can't just show up and be like, well, this is what happens in a fallen world. Sickness and, and death happen just because that's the way the world is. That, that is absolutely true, but it's only part of the truth. Yes, sickness and death exist in this world because sin exists in this world. But you know who else exists in this world? God. And he loves me and he wants the best for me. And sometimes that involves physically healing, stepping in when nothing else will work and making it right. But it also means sometimes that making it right happens when I am face to face with him in heaven. God is making all things new. And because God is making all things new, we can stand. Who can stand in the face of all of this? I can. Not through any strength of my own, but through the strength of Jesus Christ through the, the blood sacrifice that was paid that we've already talked about this morning, through the, the gift of Jesus' blood, I can stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can stand. God, we thank you that in the midst of, of all of this calamity, all of this hardship, all of these, these things that, that were announced to this first century church that have existed through all of humankind up to today and on, God, we can still stand. And the light of, of Antichrist that would say that there's another way to, to receive salvation, God, we can stand against that and say that you are the only way. God, in the, the midst of war and conflict and anger and rage, God, we can say that you are our peace. In the midst of famine and scarcity, Lord, I can come and say that, that I don't need all of the substitutes of this world. I have the real thing, and it is enough. In the midst of sickness and death unto the grave, God, you have conquered. You have conquered sin. You have conquered death in the grave, and you have made a way for your children to be with you for all of eternity, and we praise your name for it. God, thank you for your word, your word that gives hope, your word that gives encouragement. Yes, this is, this is talking about hard things. This is talking about your church going through difficult times. God, those things were going to happen. But we thank you that you're there with us in the midst of it. God, what a blessing that we here at, at Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California are able to show up. We're able to, to share and to, to sing and, and bring praise to your name openly without fear of reprisal, without fear of persecution. God, we thank you that that is where we find ourselves today. And God, there may be a time when that isn't the case. And if that is the case, if that happens, Lord, we will still stand. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are in parts of the world where they can't do those things. God, where they are persecuted, where they are facing uh, uh, persecution from governments and from others, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would give them the strength to continue to stand as well. And not just to stand, but to stand and to sing praise. 
that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 